Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Richard Bird, Chief Product Officer at Sexeta, about the risk of security breaches from third-party care providers. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Richard Bird, Chief Product Officer at Sexeta. How's it going, Richard? It's going great. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. And I was wondering if, uh, uh, starting off, you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about uh, the company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I have kind of a strange life. I, I came out of corporate uh, after 20 plus years. Uh, so I did a lot of banking in my background and a lot of, um, I did a stint as a CISO and uh, analytical device manufacturing and all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, I decided that I was uh, looking for something new and I stepped out and got into the solution space. And for a couple of years, I did strategic advising uh, across all different industry segments, um, healthcare, banking, uh, financial services, pharmaceuticals, and then um, had an opportunity to move into products. And I spent uh, three years uh, with an identity uh, organization called Ping Identity, and I joined Sexeta um, as the chief product officer um, for really a, a solution that focuses on a 30 or 40 year old problem uh, that's existed within information security that then became cybersecurity because we always have to have cool names for everything. That's right. Um, and uh, and I was really intrigued um, after observing Sexeta for a couple of years uh, that they were answering the call to solve uh, access control and security around uh, everybody else. All these other identities that fell out of uh, the space of my 20 working years in uh, employee or workforce identity uh, and customer identity, you know, classic kind of business to consumer identity. And yet there's this vast universe of all of these other identities uh, that nobody was really providing a solution for. And that's where Sexeta uh, really kind of stepped up and stepped into that particular segment. And uh, I was so intrigued by it that um, after being this old crusty identity guy for so long to see something new uh, got me really excited. So that's why I was uh, really, really eager to join the company. Um, and I'm uh, really glad uh, that I get to be a part of uh, that company's growth at this point. Excellent. Well, today I wanted to talk to you about third-party cybersecurity and healthcare and how it affects patient care. Um, so I was wondering if you could give me some examples uh, of third-party care providers and sort of how that, how that all works. Yeah, third-party care providers is a really interesting space in healthcare because it's so expansive. Um, and it's so expansive because it, it really your third-party provider exposure um, is highly dependent upon uh, the business model um, that your particular healthcare organization follows, right? Um, so we have all kinds of diversity in healthcare uh, providers and networks where um, we still have uh, nonprofit hospital networks, we have for-profit hospital networks. Uh, in California, we have situations where the entire healthcare network is populated with contractors, right? There are no, you know, there are very few full-time employees, including among doctors and nurses and, um, you know, surgical support staff and all of those different people. Um, they don't actually work for uh, those hospitals, right. they are, you know, contracted to. Um, but even then, when we think about the expansiveness of third-party uh, providers, uh, we see that there's very little uh, third-party access control around medical devices, 
uh, or IoT, as it's most uh, you know commonly called. Um, we've got HVAC providers. We've got um, you know my uh, my cousin that I grew up with uh, retired as a chief um, radiological uh, inspector uh, for for a state, right? Um, he's a third party. He has to have very sensitive access to all of the um, X-ray computing machinery. Um, and you got to figure out how to give somebody who doesn't work for you or isn't part of your ecosystem access to those things. So all of those uh, different variations and many, many more, right? People are probably listening and immediately thinking about, well, I didn't think about that being a third party uh, identity or provider, um, really fall into this space of all other identities that uh, the healthcare uh, industry is exposed to. And I guess the, tell us a little bit about sort of the big security risk that that occurs when you're using these third parties. Yeah, uh, the 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 downside of uh, that landscape that I just uh, described is um, if you ask a really um, intellectually honest uh, group of information security practitioners as well as business leaders how confident they are that anyone that I just mentioned is actually who they say they are. Mm. Uh, if they are honest from a security standpoint, they're going to say zero percent, right? Wow. And this is this is the real difficulty, right? Is is that let's just say for uh, what we we have, you know, something that's happening in the news cycle, um, you know, right now with the lapsus um, uh, hacking gang uh, that uh, that has caused problems for a number of different companies, and it was all third party access. And the security risks manifest in what we already know about those breaches uh, that were executed. Um, the first security risk is, is that um, this particular group of uh, you know, hackers uh, were actively um, pursuing and paying for people that have access into a company uh, for that access. Right? Mm -hmm. They were literally going, we'll give you, you know, $10,000 if you give us your credentials oh. to get into these organizations, right? So that's one troubling um, security threat. But the other, you know, piece to this is, is that there's very little currency or timeliness about um, confirming the, the accurate identity and, and the veracity of that identity for these third parties. So in the case of, say, a service provider that's coming into uh, a healthcare organization um, digitally, right? Um, all I have to do is steal your credentials and I am now you, right? And third party is very ripe for that because um, it's been very, very difficult for companies to have a continuous confirmation that the person that they contracted to you three years ago is still that same person digitally. Right. Because most times, yeah, most times we only prove the accuracy of that the first time. Right. right. We don't prove the accuracy of that relationship and the accuracy of that identity every single time. And it's really moving towards the every single time proving um, that reduces massive amounts of risks within organizations. But today it's really, it's really evident you know, when we look at the last um, five years of breaches, uh, we can look at um, the recent issues that have happened with Okta and with Microsoft, the recent issues that happened with LG, EA, um, with SolarWinds, with, you keep going down the list, kind of all the way back to Edward Snowden. Mm -hmm. And um, these are all third-party facilitated 
breaches and exploits, right? Almost every single one of them uh, had the manifestation of a security or the exploitation of a security weakness through third-party access. And uh, sometimes I, you know, I have been a CISO, I have been a CIO. Um, tongue in cheek, I always say this because I don't mean to offend anybody, but sometimes um, I feel like being in the cybersecurity trades, I'm in the only technical trade that doesn't pay attention to data, evidence, and history. <laughs> um, because the same breaches and, and exploits keep right. getting executed and we don't see the, the gaps and those, um, those holes being closed. We just see them being uh, uh, used over and over again. And the third party space is where we see this most common threat vector. Um, you know, the last couple of years has seen a huge increase in, in the use of telehealth. Uh, you know, do people don't want to go into the doctor's office. So they're, you know, they're, they're, they're connecting with people, you know, obviously via the computer or, or whatever device. H have you seen any increase uh, in security breaches because of telehealth? So we've seen a lot of different kind of unplanned or unexpected outcomes from telehealth. Um, and, and so the, so the, the, the most basic of all kind of um, hacks and frauds going back thousands of years, um, because I, I do like to remind people that the nefarious stuff that we see in the digital world is simply a replication of the pattern of the nefarious stuff that we've seen in the analog world for about 10,000 years. Right, right. Um, and because everything is always an attempt to get something I shouldn't have by being somebody that I'm really not. That's the way I explain cybersecurity to my 75-year-old father, right? Um, and he totally gets it because he goes, that's the plot from the movie The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul <laughs> yeah, Newman. Exactly. And I'm like, exactly, right? Um, and and so when we look at telehealth, and, and I'm going to really raise my hand here real quick and just say I'm a huge fan. I used it multiple times during the course of COVID, right? When we look at telehealth, it, it creates um, you know a new opportunity for the bad guys. Um, and that new opportunity is just capitalizing on an old hack, an old con, you know, which is which is man in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so now I, I established this two-way digital channel for us to be able to exchange information in the course of being, uh, you know, in preparing for my telehealth experience. I've got email involved. I might have text involved. I might have um, links uh, within those emails to click through. And as we know, all of those different surfaces are highly exploitable by bad actors, right? Um, so I think one of the things that telehealth is struggling with is that um, you have to protect all of those different communication channels and aspects uh, in order to be able to protect many different things. First of all, you know, uh, you know, patient doctor <coughs> trust, mm -hmm. right, for sure. Uh, patient doctor privacy requirements. So now you have to be really, really good <coughs> pardon me, at protecting all of those different um, access points is number one. We have lots of lessons that teach us how to do that. Number two, that's probably a little bit more troubling, kind of falls into my area of, um, you know, specific domain interest is um, when we look at the information that gets shared in these telehealth um, experiences, we have to be conscious of the fact that um, the vast majority of bad actors are really interested in acquiring, um, you know, detailed information 
about you. I'm always like to, you know, remind folks that when it comes down to the personal level, the consumer or the citizen, just the individual human being, bad actors are out there continuously grinding as much personal information as they possibly can to create a more and more convincing digital you. There, there, there are people out there right now trying to create a synthetic Richard Bird and to use, you know, my credit information, to use right. my healthcare information, to use all of these different component pieces of what we would assume is disparate data, um, but it's about me to aggregate this this really really convincing digital me, and to to really emphasize the size and scale of that that uh, consequence that comes from what these bad actors are doing and where they can capitalize on the data you know by capturing an in-stream telehealth all that kind of stuff is um, I, I always like to give a shout out to the Identity Theft Resource Center. Um, in San Diego, uh, the ITRC, um, I'm really, you know, encouraging people to go look at the kind of, you know, numbers, the billions of records of personal information that are being stolen every year. And then also look at the stories about the consequences that it has for people, mm -hmm. full on digital identity um, uh, used to do identity theft and fraud, take over people's lives. So we have to be really, really conscious that Telehealth opens up a aperture for even more uh, sensitive and and you know pertinent information that the bad actors want to use to build a digital you. So really, telehealth needs to be cautious in two sectors: the purely mechanical and operational. Get the security right around all of those different channel uh, channels of communication, and then be super super conscious about you know this level of information that's being shared and the catastrophic consequences probably won't accrue to the healthcare provider, they'll accrue to the patient. And we never want to put a patient in harm's way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could run through a couple of recent examples of third-party security breaches in healthcare. Yeah. Um, I know there's <laughs> like, I said, we have, yeah. <laughs> like I said, we have we have an immediate one in the news cycle currently. Um, and I think, you know, that one is very interesting because um, this is a classic example of a third-party service provider who uh, was given access to, um, you know, production capabilities and production data um, with uh, very little in the way of secondary controls, right? So in that particular case that we're seeing um, with Okta, with Microsoft and with a number of other companies, um, and I'm only speaking about what's been publicly shared by them, right? I, I think it's very unfair um, for us to do window shop forensics on on companies. And believe me, in the cybersecurity trades, a lot of people are making a lot of assumptions and being right. very presumptuous about the problems that Okta and Microsoft are facing. I always feel like that's that's kind of like uh, rolling up on a 50 car pile up on the highway and getting out of your car and immediately start pointing at who who caused it. Right, right. right. There's a lot of complexity in what's going down. But when we look at, at that particular case, um, that was a third party access that um, was that access was granted and there was an absence of kind of secondary and tertiary controls to um, make sure that that person was who they said they were, were doing what they're supposed to be doing and had what they were supposed to have. Um, when we look at other ones, I mean, Verkata is a really interesting one. Um, there was a third party uh, takeover uh, of their systems, which um, exposed hundreds of thousands of uh, physical security cameras uh, that were then you know, utilized for, you know, data aggregation, you know, all kinds of different pieces of information can be taken, not just from digital databases, 
but from live video streams, right? You can right. see patterns of behavior. You can see when guards are on duty, when they're not, when trucks are arriving, all that kind of stuff, which is really important in this third party space because we are seeing a rapid collapse of physical security into digital security uh, because there's very little that happens anymore um, from a uh, bad uh, consequences or bad action standpoint um, that doesn't have a digital aspect to it. Right. Um, and, and in many cases, it's 100 percent digital aspects to it. Um, and then, you know, third party access, I, I really like to kind of, you know, point out this reality that you don't own, manage or, you know, um, run the contractors that are in your organization. You've outsourced that responsibility to an agency. And in that, you know, in that construct, um, you know, the the third party security breaches that we've seen um, have ranged everywhere from, uh, you know, taking over medical uh, devices. Great example, uh, ransomware attack in uh, in Germany uh, last year, I believe, manifested the first fatality uh, recorded by a digital hack. Mm -hmm. um, a, uh, a patient was uh, on the way uh, for emergency surgery and had to be rerouted and passed away um, in transit, right? Um, you know, that was a third party breach. And, and I think that the consequences are going to continue to escalate until we can, until we really kind of put our focus on, you know, closing down the gates of this widely known, widely understood weakness in, in our security um, structures, um, which is this third party access. So that leads me to my next question, which is what can healthcare organizations do uh, to protect themselves and patients? So in 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 the strange life that is mine, <laughs> I actually had a, a TV interview last night. Um, and I was I, 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 for folks that are listening um, there. It is really, really a strange life to have spent many, many years as a practitioner and now have opportunities to have conversations like this. And I am not an expert. Right. And when it comes to. Um, the world of identity, I always like to tell people, I just did it much earlier than most folks. And my whole goal in life is to um, is to keep you from making the same mistakes that I made. <laughs> right. I am an expert with bruises and scars and, mm -hmm. and that's about it. Right. And when we look at, you know, what companies, agencies, organizations, healthcare providers, everybody should be doing is first and foremost is making a conscious, um, focused and funded effort to understand all of the known and unknown. I'm going to talk about that in just a second because it sounds you know, uh, contradictory. How do I know an unknown identity? But known and unknown identities that I interact with every single day, right? And what I mean by unknown identities is unowned identities. Um, and this is a this is a problem that is particularly prevalent in in healthcare, which is I have um, all kinds of devices um, that have a quasi identity, um, but they're not being managed as an identity, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and nobody owns them, right? You have service techs that are responsible for managing them, keeping you know upkeeping uh, or keeping them up to date, but nobody really owns them. So when something goes sideways with the accounts that are associated with all of these medical devices, um, because they're not owned, we're kind of depending upon luck and hope 
that it will somehow manifest as an errant signal that will catch our attention, right? So I need to know not only what those identities are for those devices, but I need to know who's responsible for them. And if nobody's responsible for them, I need to fix that, right? Um, because if it's unowned and unknown, that is the, the definition of a security weakness, mm -hmm. right? Um, also knowing in detail all of the other identities that you uh, interact with, right? And a lot of times what I get when I mention this idea of an inventory of identities is, wow, like that's a really big job. Wow, we it, that's too complicated. <laughs> we can't do that, right? Um, and, and my response is, is well, they, you know, that there's a choice here, right? Um, we know that 80 plus percent of the time, based upon Verizon data for each incident report, um, that, you know, the, 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 the primary entry point for all breaches, exploits, and hacks is identity, right? Um, and, and also, when we look at an organization um, like uh, Black Height, uh, they um, clearly show that 33 percent of, you know, uh, healthcare is the target uh, for, or that of all third party access um, breaches, 33% of them were healthcare. Um, I kind of bundle that information back to what I said about, we seem to ignore data history and evidence. Mm -hmm. I bundle the information that's clearly in front of us and say, okay, there's a choice then. Either it's too hard to, to immediately go out and start to understand our inventory of identities, or we're just not gonna do anything about it. And things are gonna continue the way that right. they are. Right, just cross your fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that inventory is is first and foremost, and then once the once you really understand the identities that you're interacting with, now you can begin to make informed and educated decisions on the best way to control those identities in a way that keeps you secure, in a way that helps you meet compliance obligations, in a way that helps you meet privacy pre, meet privacy organizations, because. And I think this is incredibly important for folks that are listening. There is no silver bullet, right? right? Understanding your inventory is the basics for everything that we do. I mean, I can translate this into the healthcare world, right? Can, can you imagine um, a surgical suite where, you know, in, in kind of pre-surgery prep, nobody bothered to count all the things, right? right? Go into that surgery, right? Um, it, it, you know, that, that inventory principle is a very common practice within the healthcare trades. And it, 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 but, you know, importantly, once you have that inventory, you cannot expect or assume that you're going to be able to provide security and privacy and control with the same methods across all of those different identities, right? Some of it might be really, really onerous and create a tremendous amount of friction. Right. I'm always thinking about, you know, the idea of a surgeon having to log into some kind of device in the surgical suite. There's a tremendous amount of complications there, right, just physically and operationally. So I'm not going to, you know, assign the same kind of security control to that contracted doctor in the surgical suite that I would to the guy that's working in the IT department down the hallway right, who's keeping all the machinery running. So, um, you know, the inventory and then making educated and informed decisions on how to best secure each of the populations that you're exposed to. Those are the critical first two steps. After that, it's all kind of, you know, kind of cool tech stuff, mm -hmm. but the first two parts are really, you know, are really solving a business problem, right? Not necessarily a technical problem. So, 
if you're a healthcare organization that does get hit with one of these breaches, um, you know, what's the best way to, to react? What's the best response to it? Well, when we look at, you know, the, the experiences that healthcare organizations have had, um, most recently and the most common pattern has been, uh, you know, being hit by ransomware. Right. And right. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, kind of diminish uh, the, um, the, that reality, um, you know, to talk about other types of uh, security consequences. Um, one of the things that I do always like to point out with ransomware, because it's not intuitive to most folks, is ransomware is a classic identity exploit, right? Mm. Um, the only way that I get into your system is to be able to hijack, um, steal, or misappropriate um, credentials that belong to somebody else, right? And once I'm in, now I immediately go search through your organization to or your systems to go find that weak spot that I can now encrypt and lock up and make things difficult. Um, so, you know, really we have to be, um, you know, that intellectual honesty. If I fix identity, I reduce uh, my ransomware exposure. So that's a proactive measure. If I get hit with ransomware, um, you know, the, 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 the most frequent pattern is uh, for folks to fail back to a backup uh, of some kind, right, of those systems, um, which has proven problematic because, you know, companies quickly find out that the discipline associated with their backups wasn't as great as they thought it was. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, definitely is important to have proactive approaches before you get hit. Once you are hit, um, you know, you really have to be uh, ready to do the tough intellectual exercise, which is, okay, we got hit in one particular space, right? A ransomware takeover, a data uh, database breach. Um, now I have to believe that everything inside of my environment is suspect. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this, you know, what I call the, the cybersecurity nihilism, which is, you know, this mantra that people say, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Mm -hmm. um, I really, really struggle with that for two reasons. The first is, is that um, if it was a matter of if, it, a matter of when and not if, then what we really would have become good at is recovery <laughs> and incident response. Right. And we would have poured tons of money into that. We haven't. Right. We, incident response, as we've seen in the news cycle, isn't really good. Um, you know, so the 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 cybersecurity nihilism also is a psychological problem in my mind because we actually prepave the populate or prepave the roadway for failure. We go, we're already beat. Right. I, I don't understand that 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 notion. We don't see it manifest anywhere else in, in the business world that I'm already beat. Um, but once we have been hit. I'm not saying assume that you're breached everywhere. Just be suspicious of everything in your environment and go interrogate it. Go tear it apart. Go look at it and make sure that there's nothing that you didn't miss. Um, because I'll go back to what I said about, you know, it's thousands of years of these behaviors in the analog. It is a known behavior of hackers for them to take advantage of something big and something that really attracts your attention um, and diverts all of your resources and then use that in order to distract you from the other things that they're doing, right? And it's really important to understand those mindsets and behaviors of the bad guys. I don't like to say hackers, 
um, because there's bad guys in every aspect of our lives. But in this particular case, you have to be suspicious of everything post-breach and literally tear it apart and interrogate it. And I know that that's difficult, which is why I strongly advocate for the proactive steps that I mentioned sure. earlier so that you don't get hit. <laughs> so, you know, in the case of like a hospital that gets hit with a ransomware um, threat, uh, is it a different kind of situation that, that you're dealing with just because there's, you know, potentially lives at stake if they, you yeah. know, shut down the, you know, your equipment or, you know, in the middle of surgery or something like that? Like, is it, you know, are, are I guess I, I'm not sure like how every hospital reacts, but like, is the tendency to just pay the ransom so they can keep the, keep everything working? The, the disclosure of ransom payments has been problematic. So the answer to that is, is probably, um, yeah. but when we think about it in, you know, in, in concrete data terms, don't know. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that there's certainly an expectation that a human natural human response to a catastrophic intrusion like ransomware that is taking off uh, or taking out uh, life saving devices, life saving personnel in a particular moment makes perfect sense that a human's response would be just pay it and let's get back to you know saving lives. It's understandable. Um, I want to just take a second here, though, because I, I do a, a substantial amount of work for with advocating a couple of different groups that I'm involved in, advocating for better laws, better regulation, better uh, compliance demands as it relates to cybersecurity. And I think fundamentally, if there was anything that I would ask the healthcare industry to do, um, it would be to um, work with your respective uh, representatives um, in, in Congress um, in particular, um, to to demand that we stop allowing cryptocurrency to be unregulated, um, because it is in cryptocurrency that these ransoms get paid, and it is in the anonymization or the pseudonymization. I have always struggle with that word um, of of the actors who are uh, you know acquiring these funds that are being paid in crypto. Um, that is facilitating uh, this massive explosion in ransomware. Um, and I always, you know, am passionate about this particular point because I mentioned at the top of the discussion, I'm a banker by trade, right? And um, when you provide avenues for, for ill-gotten gains to be transferred in an economy that is separate from the economy that is managed and controlled, um, you create opportunities for all of these bad actors, right? All of the bad guys, right? They're not dealing in clean money. Right. Like a hospital's not getting hit with ransomware and then getting a note that says, you know, meet me in the town square next to the statue with a brown satchel filled with cash, right? Yeah. Unmarked, they're, they're, unmarked bills. And they're <laughs> yeah. They're paying they're paying those those in in these unregulated cryptocurrency markets. Um, not a popular opinion with folks that are on the leading edge of crypto. I get it. Um, but the damage is real. And I think that the consequences that we're seeing are gonna to continue to escalate. And um, I think that you know the frustration uh, that we have shouldn't be allowed to fester and boil to a point where you know, real numbers of real human beings are being lost because life-saving measures are being shut off because some jack wagon is out there messing with medical devices because he found an easy pathway to go go exploit it, 
right? Um, there, if there were not avenues for economic gain, we would see ransomware diminish as an attack. Um, and, and we all have to be very, very conscious of that. You mentioned earlier that um, in healthcare, at least the sort of security measure, they haven't really put a lot of money into, into sort of security for this kind of stuff. Why, why do you think that is? As, wow, opposed, it, to, as it, opposed to other businesses. Yeah, I, so I will give my um, broad general statement warning here <laughs> because I, you know, I, I have an opportunity to work with a ton of different healthcare uh, providers and networks and organizations. And, and there's a really broad spectrum of, of maturity and innovation that's happening there, right? Um, so it's, it is kind of unfair to make the blanket statement, but I have to make the blanket statement. Mm. Um, which is, um, you know, healthcare is a highly fragmented industry. Um, you know, I, when I have, you know, kind of these go-to-market conversations with people about healthcare, I'm like, which healthcare? Right. <laughs> right. Are you talking about providers? Are you talking about payers? Are you talking about, right? There's so much diversity. And in, in healthcare organizations that actually have kind of the large stripes of healthcare functionality, very siloed. Right. Very, um, very broken apart um, for a long time. That was understandable because each of these different, you know, stripes had their own functional responsibilities within the healthcare, health healthcare system. Um, because of digital, um, everything is now connected to everything. Right. And with everything being connected to everything, it's changed the landscape. But organizationally, um, healthcare organizations haven't kind of changed how um, information security is centralized. Um, so I know of several healthcare organizations that uh, each, uh, each substantial unit within that healthcare organization has its own information security, usually only a couple people, right? Um, you know, very uh, challenging for them to manage all of the different attack surfaces with just a couple of folks. Um, very little aggregation of information. One of the interesting places where I've seen this manifest most, most commonly is um, in university healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. um, you have a university, you have university healthcare, and in many cases, neither the twain shall meet. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that creates complexities because, um, you know, every personality that I have in the digital world represents um, an exploitable surface. So if I'm a doctor, but I'm also a researcher, but I'm also a patient, but I'm also a professor, um, right? Each one of those has different expectations, right. in some cases different laws about what I can see, right? And what I can have access to. And so, you know, the, um, the fragmentation is really what organizational and structural fragmentation is really what has driven kind of the underfunding and the, you know, kind of the not keeping pace with other industries uh, as it relates to security performance. Um, and then, you know, the, the, you know, the bigger reality, and I'm always conscious of this fact is, is that, you know, healthcare is, is not in the primary business of security, right? Right. Healthcare is in the primary business of taking care of people. And, uh, and I, I do fault um, the solution side of the equation uh, from the standpoint of uh, we have to build security solutions that are conditioned for healthcare um, and healthcare environments in order to be able to help healthcare meet that requirement of taking care of people and not have to meet the requirement of also being cybersecurity experts 24 seven. 
Um, and, and I would say that, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of apprehension or anxiety in the security solution space because um, healthcare uh, scenarios uh, represent a lot of complications, right? And not technical complication, operational complications. And we need to do a better job of, of helping uh, the healthcare uh, industries be successful with operationally astute security solutions that protect the digital side of that equation. Yeah, I, I imagine that's, you know, going to take a while for something like that to actually, you know, uh, come to fruition, right? Yeah, it, I, unfortunately, I'm a pragmatist, uh, a skeptic, and a cynic. <laughs> Ooh, all three. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all three. It's a, <laughs> it's a heavy burden. Um, and uh, and I, I, you know, a lot of times I get asked, and I, I've met with hundreds, if not thousands, of different uh, companies over the last five years. And a lot of times I get asked, you know, what's going to make the needle move faster? Um, unfortunately, business behaviors, take healthcare out of it, right? Business writ large, particularly in the United States, um, has shown that the only thing that changes behavior is a catastrophic event, right? And I, I do think that that means that we need to be more forthright with sharing with each other the indications of compromise and the methods of attack that are being used by organizations when we get hit. Um, so that we can start to show that these patterns are so common and that these methods of attack are so common that security is a team game, right? This is security is not me being secure and you not being secure. That's the whole problem with third party. I'm secure. Third party is not secure. Therefore, right. I'm no longer secure, right? We, we have to really, really um, get out of this mindset that, I'm going to wait until somebody else gets hit before I start to make changes myself so that we're not forced into, I now have to make massive changes because I've been hit. Right. Right. Um, and, and I need to move fast. And I think that this, uh, this behavior of uh, wait and see, um, or this strategy of, um, you know, crossing fingers and hoping that somebody else and not me is, is a failing strategy. And I think the last 30 or 40 years has proven that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been uh, very uh, interesting and educational. Hey, I'm just uh, happy to have the opportunity to talk. So thank you very much. All right. That wraps up episode 51 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.